safeguarding adults in education. You're listening to the Public Law Podcast, brought to you by the members of 39 Essex Chambers. Hello, everyone. This is Steve Broach here. I'm joined by my colleague, Anna Bikaregi, and we're looking at uh, the question of safeguarding adults in education as part of the Everyone's Business podcast series. It's a safeguarding podcast exploring interesting and unique perspectives in respect of safeguarding children and adults at risk. The series is part of 39 Essex's Public Law podcast and features guests who can offer exceptional insight into the subject. We hope Anna and I will oblige. Uh, The series first released with 10 episodes over the summer of 2022, from safeguarding in esports to the role of safeguarding adult sports, there's something for everyone. And in 2023, we're returning for Adult Safeguarding Week, looking at a series of topics that are relevant to the question of safeguarding adults. Anna, perhaps you'd like to say hi. Hello, I'm Anna Bikaregi, and with Steve, we're going to be having a go at safeguarding adults in education. We both practice in this area, so hopefully we'll have something vaguely useful to say. Absolutely. And I think you're going to start us off with some general thoughts on the distinction perhaps between safeguarding children in education and safeguarding adults. So there is very clear guidance, as I'm sure many people know, about safeguarding children in education. Indeed, there's the Keeping Children Safe in Education guidance, which is usually updated every year or certainly very regularly. And that sets out in quite a lot of detail how children are supposed to be safeguarded in education. However, there is no equivalent statutory guidance for adults at risk or vulnerable adults or adults with special educational needs in education. So that obviously means that we've done a bit of searching, Steve and I, to consider what it means when you're talking about keeping adults safe in education. I think when we've done this discussion, there might be a sort of useful question at the end as to whether or not there should be some form of collated guidance, which helps people find relevant information about safeguarding adults in education. But that's, I think, a question for the end. But what do we mean then when we talk about safeguarding adults in education? If you think about adults in university, I think we might all, in a sort of general sense, hope that they're all being safeguarded. But in legal terms, there isn't the framework in quite that way. So you can talk about well-being, you can talk about keeping the institution, if you like, safe. But safeguarding is usually used to talk about adults at risk under the CARE Act. And I think we'll come to talk about that in a little bit more detail or about adults who are defined as vulnerable as well. And the other group I think that Steve and I would like to talk about is adults who've got special educational needs or disabilities and where those adults have an education, health and care plan, that goes up to the age of 25. And so clearly at that point you have a cohort of adults in education who require some thought about safeguarding to be given to them. So that's really what we're talking about, I think, in the most general sense when we talk about safeguarding adults in education. We're talking about those groups, adults at risk, vulnerable adults, and also adults with special educational needs and disabilities. Although I know that Steve and I also want to think about the fact that these are young adults. And so how more generally there can be said to be a sort of a safeguarding duty in relation to them. Absolutely, Anna. So we're dealing really with quite a varied cohort here, aren't we? We're taking adults as meaning those who've turned 18, but the group who are between 18 and and 25 are still treated as young people for the purposes of the Children and Families Act. And so, as Anna says, may well continue to have education, health and care plans if they have significant special educational needs. We're also dealing with young people who, by the nature of their age, will remain to some extent vulnerable. 
and certainly will not have the maturity of older adults, but are treated as adults in law. There being no distinction between an 18-year-old or a 35-year-old or 85-year-old for the purposes of general legal responsibilities and so on. So we do think there's some really interesting issues, and we'll perhaps come to those later in the higher education section on general safeguarding concerns. Before we get there, we are going to speak, first of all, taking it chronologically, about adults in schools and further education colleges. And it is quite striking, of course, that schools will have adults in them, those that have sixth forms. Most students in year 13 will be adults. And Anna and I were doing the maths earlier and we think it's most, not all. Yet the Keeping Children Safe in Education guidance very clearly relates solely to children. And children are expressly defined, as one would expect, as being those who haven't yet turned 18. So at least in strict terms, there's something of a lacuna there because schools are not given statutory guidance in relation to their safeguarding obligations for those who've turned 18 and who remain in schools. Now, I anticipate and rather hope that actually little, if anything, is done differently for 18-year-olds in schools and that the Keeping Children Safe guidance will be followed in relation to 18-year-olds as it would be if those young people were still 17. And the part of the reason for that, of course, is that the legal distinction that's most relevant here perhaps actually happens on the young person's 16th birthday. Business at that point that the Mental Capacity Act applies to them in almost every respect. And so if there is going to be a difference in approach in terms of, for example, who would give consent to any kind of investigation step, who is deemed to be the person responsible for decision making, then it should really change at 16, not at 18. So there's nothing I think, I'd be interested to see if you agree on that, that really ought to change in a school's approach to safeguarding issues just because the people happens to have turned 18, except, of course, for the fact that the statutory framework to respond to safeguarding concerns, certainly in the local authority, will have changed because the CARE Act applies from a person's 18th birthday. And so rather than any referral being made to children's social care, it would be made to adult social care, and if there was going to be any kind of investigation, it would happen under Section 42 of the Care Act, as opposed to under Section 47 of, of the Children Act. So that's a distinction externally that schools would need to take into account. But other than that, can we really think of anything that ought to be done particularly differently for an 18-year-old in school than if that young person was still 16 or 17? I think exactly the two distinctions that you've made are the, are the relevant ones, really. And I think purely as a practical matter. So in terms of the particular duty of care that might arise in a school, and I know we're going to come and think about this when in higher education, for example, I think that it's absolutely right that, as you say, keeping children safe in education would simply be followed except for the different kind of referral process that would follow. So I think just as a sort of sheer matter of sort of practicalities, one imagines that's the case as well. But it's interesting to note it, I think, as a point, and as you say, as a in black letter terms, as a kind of lacuna. But I think practically it would be followed subject to referring to the different parts of the Act, I think, as you say. So it's almost as if school staff who have sixth forms and, and have adults in the school need to reread Keeping Children Safe in Education with that in mind and think, well, in practical terms, if we had 
an adult safeguarding issue come up, what would we need to do differently? Is it just a question of replacing the word child with adult everywhere it appears? It's probably rather more sophisticated than that. But in principle, we think that the same sorts of processes ought to be used. Yeah. And also you could have a child and an adult, I guess, couldn't you? Because you were saying, so I think I turned 18 in the October of my year 13. And I think for you, it was December. Now, again, that may, as a matter of practice, not lead to any particular difficulties, but it's certainly worth thinking about, I would have thought. Definitely. So if, for example, there was an allegation of sexual misconduct, it might be that it's a child making that allegation against an adult or an adult making it against a child. And we could still be talking in both cases about pupils, not teachers. That's something that I think settings will need to consider very carefully. One thing that struck me going back to keeping children safe in education is how much of an emphasis is placed on the designated safeguarding lead and their role in keeping children safe. Uh, I did a search. There are 136 references to the DSL in the guidance document. And so I definitely think that the DSL and their deputy needs to be alive to the possibility that they will have adult safeguarding concerns within a school setting. Of course, that may be the case that staff in a school are vulnerable in some way as well and will need to be safeguarded potentially, but more likely this older cohort of pupils crossing the line into their 18th birthday may need to be treated somewhat differently. And certainly in a serious case, the referral mechanism will be different. So I think that's probably all we need to say about schools. The next topic up in our chronological list was going to be FE colleges. Now, of course, this isn't straightforward either because those colleges may well have students who are still children. So we can't assume that just because we're in a college setting, we're dealing solely with adult safeguarding. They will also be needing to safeguard children and keeping children safe refers to schools and colleges throughout for that exact reason, I would suggest. So we'll park that problem and leave that for our colleagues on the ground to actually solve and think about colleges, FE colleges response to adult safeguarding concerns. So the starting point I'd suggest is that there will be lots of young adults in FE colleges who have quite significant levels of special educational needs and or disabilities, many of whom, but not all, will be there in accordance with an education, health and care plan that names that college in section I. And the college therefore has a duty to admit that young person and will have a duty of care to them while providing the education to them. And I think, and it would be really interesting to look at this question of safeguarding perhaps from both sides in terms of when colleges need to take steps to keep their young people safe, but also the ways in which safeguarding concerns might be misused as a reason to avoid the young person attending the college in the first place or perhaps to exclude them once they're there. If we take that approach and start with what sorts of principles should FE colleges apply to keep their young adult students safe. I think we'd say, wouldn't we, that it's essentially the approach in keeping children safe in education, recognising, however, the increased autonomy that the young people must have. And so immediately we then come into questions of capacity because many of those young people, questions will be asked about whether the presumption in the Mental Capacity Act that they're able to make all decisions for themselves has been uh, rebutted. And in fact, in relation to certain decisions, they're not able 
to make them themselves. And what does that then mean? And, and of course, what it should mean is that best interest decisions are then taken on their behalf. So, for example, if there was a concern that a person was being exploited or being abused in some way, if the young adult student doesn't want to do anything about that, if they have capacity to make that decision, they're entitled to say, no, I don't want any steps to be taken. If they don't have capacity, then the question of whether to take steps would become a best interests question with the young person's own views or wishes at the centre. So it seems to me that actually the questions in relation to safeguarding in FE colleges must start by being answered by that question in terms of does the young person have capacity to decide what to do for themselves? And that then becomes also relevant to any referral that might be made under the CARE Act to a local authority, because in order to trigger the duty for the local authority to do anything, there has to not only be reasonable cause to suspect abuse or neglect and a minimal threshold of having some need for care and support, but also that the adult is unable to protect themselves against the abuse or neglect or the risk of it. And I think it's really interesting that Section 42 of the CARE Act builds that in, because it does recognise that it's ultimately a matter for the person if they have capacity and are able to protect themselves to do so. And the state should only be intervening in cases where people genuinely need protection. So that tension that, that runs through all the case law about protection versus an overly paternalistic approach. So I think that's going to be really important for FE colleges not to just behave as if these are still children that have got a bit bigger but to rigorously analyse questions of capacity before doing anything else. I think you've really vividly set out, actually, how complicated FE colleges are. Some are children, some are adults with capacity, some are adults who lack capacity, some adults who have additional needs. And yet, certainly a lot of the papers that I see, a lot of that complexity is lost. And in fact, what you tend to see is a kind of, this is our disciplinary process, we have applied it and therefore we have either refused to admit or we have excluded. And all of that complexity is lost. So exactly the questions that you've set out there. And I certainly have seen a number of cases where adults who have got special educational needs are treated. The question of capacity just isn't raised at all. There are no adjustments to the disciplinary policy. There are no questions um, asked about whether additional support could mitigate any of these things. So and I'm sure that, of course, there will be good practice in this sector. But I think there are occasions when, because of its complexity, you end up with quite a blunt tool being applied to it at the point where you're trying to kind of row it back. And that's almost inevitably incredibly difficult. And so I think if more thought was given by settings and by local authorities uh, to exactly these types of questions and how everybody's educational opportunities uh, can be safeguarded and welfare, that would be yeah, sort of embracing the complexity. Maybe there needs to be some clearer guidance about this because, again, I, when I've come into it in, in different FE settings, there's often a kind of template disciplinary policy, but there isn't very much else. So this kind of guidance that we've been talking about, this keeping adults safe in education, might be a very useful tool in that kind of setting. I don't know if that's also your experience, Steve, because I know you've had a lot of cases, similar cases. I completely agree. I think that there's a real gap here that the Department of the Secretary of State ought to be considering filling. And it's a space that has, of course, got some important and controversial guidance in, for example, in relation to the prevent duty and 
young adults who might be at risk, deemed to be at risk of radicalization, many of whom one might hypothesize are also young people with special educational needs and or disabilities. And the interface there in terms of people's vulnerability to being caught up into that area, I'm not sure has been fully explored. And guidance that does flag up keeping children safe, of course, flags up the prevent duty guidance for FE institutions. So we do have guidance in that area, but not general guidance on keeping young adults safe. I think that's a really striking example of a scheme that isn't yet fully thought through and different political imperatives perhaps applying. Yeah, I think that's right. And it's just a pocket, isn't it? So one might imagine that being an interesting chapter or it, but part of something which was much broader and actually maybe reflected what colleges were experiencing daily, because I'm not suggesting that it's necessarily easy to manage all of the different factors, because as you said, and as I think you set out really clearly, these are complex things. And so that you might have young adults who do need quite a lot of support in order to be able to access the same educational provision that other adults are accessing without any problems. But it does strike me that there is a real lack of kind of coherent, sort of centralised guidance to help these institutions. So since 2014, the Children and Families Act, we've had this EHCPs going up to 25. And yet I still find that there is far less understanding just broadly, I mean, local authority level in the placements themselves about that cohort who are 19 to 25. And maybe it's because there hasn't been enough kind of interaction with adult social care services or, again, just getting some sort of clarity for that cohort about safeguarding, but also about a number of other issues I think would be really, really helpful. When you think about young adults' lives, young adults start to do things that would be deemed to be safeguarding issues when children do them. The most obvious example being engaging in sexual activity. And how should a, an FE college respond to a situation where one of their adult learners is engaging in sexual activity, understood to be, in a way that they deem risky or inappropriate? They have to be rigorous, I suggest, in terms of looking at questions of capacity and allowing young adults to make decisions and do things that others might deem to be unwise. We all know the principle of, of unwise decision-making, not meaning that the person lacks capacity to make the decision for themselves. And that's fine and easy for lawyers to recite in talks like this, but much more difficult to actually apply on the ground when you've got a young person who might be doing things that really seem to be risky and dangerous, engaging in behaviours that without doubt for a child would result in a safeguarding referral to the local authority. But questions then arise, well, is he able to decide for himself whether that's something he should be doing? And certainly when a college is faced with those wider welfare concerns, I think when the safeguarding issue perhaps arises more narrowly within the education context, it may be rather easier. But when they're just more worried about the young person, there does need to be some more support, I'd suggest, as to what do they then do. Uh, the obvious answer is refer to the local authority, ask them to look at it, it under Section 42. But of course, it's a striking feature of Section 42 of the Care Act that it doesn't actually empower the local authority to do anything at all other than inquire. What does the local authority do then once it's inquired? There's only a few options available, call the police being the most striking, and provide services under the Care Act being the rather more mundane. So it definitely feels to me like a space that hasn't been considered anywhere near 
well, obviously nowhere near as much as children, and I'd suggest nowhere near as much as it should in terms of the actual obligations to keep young adults safe in FE colleges. But we were also going to look at the perhaps the, the, the corollary, the flip side of this, and you can't come to our college because you're a safeguarding risk. Have you got any examples, Anna, or any thoughts of cases where those kinds of concerns might be misused to, to keep young adults out of education? Yes. So not admitting and then also, as I say, using quite blunt disciplinary tools in order to exclude young adults. I have seen a number of both such cases. And what's difficult is that by the time they reach us, I, I think usually things have gone so far that those decisions sort of have become almost irrevocable. And usually they haven't thought about what tools that could be in place. So I think FE College is a little bit, as I said, about not being linked up with the, in the way that sort of EHC plans for children and schools, if you like, are used to implementing. And I think FE Colleges are a lot less used to interacting with the local authority about EHC plans. So for example, saying to local authority, well, we can meet this young person's educational needs, but we need this kind of support. We need some one-to-one, we need some travel training, we need to make sure that these things are in place. So I find that a lot of that sort of basic understanding of what they might be able to usefully have in an EHCP to support a young person in FE college is often lost. And reasonable adjustments, I mean, certainly I'm not suggesting that FE colleges are not alive to their duties under the Equality Act because they clearly are. But I think those kind of discussions and what might be possible to put in place are quite often quite narrowly drawn. That's certainly my experience. I've had, a, again, a number of cases where young people with disabilities have been excluded by simply following a disciplinary policy, not making adjustments to that policy, not thinking about the support that could be put in. And by the time barristers get involved, as I say, there's a kind of limited scope to being able to sort all of that out. So I think there's a real sort of work to be done on local authorities working more closely with FE colleges to make sure that the support is in place for young adults. And as you say, safeguarding is used as a kind of, oh, because perhaps on the planet says something along the lines of has difficulty managing social interactions or may say inappropriate things, may approach people inappropriately, may even sort of use sexually inappropriate language or whatever in in inappropriate settings, all of which is absolutely possible to have things in place to help with, to mitigate, to, and yet that is often just a blanket. And it's a kind of red flag sometimes, isn't it, to institutions? Because, and as you say, because FE colleges will have children there, and this may be a young adult, so their immediate concern is, well, this young adult is going to say something sexually inappropriate to a child we can't have that and therefore the young adult can't come without asking all of the questions which might make it absolutely fine for that young adult to be there in terms of the support that they might need to get them there. So yes, I'm afraid that that part of it, that second part, as you say, I certainly have experience of that. And again, you kind of hope that there would be sort of greater clarity in the guidance about this because I think it is difficult for those institutions. I don't think it's malicious or it's malign. I think they really genuinely are struggling to think how they can manage it and how they can make it work for everyone. So yes. Just breaking that down a little then in terms of the two pinch points. First of all, can you get into the college at all? Of course, if there's an EHC plan and we're dealing with a maintained college or a non-maintained college, they will have to admit the young person unless they can rely on one of the exceptions 
in Section 39 of the Children and Families Act, the two relevant ones being that they would be unsuitable for the young person. Or, and I think this is the one that would be interesting here, that the attendance of the young person would be incompatible with the efficient education of other young people. And there's an interesting case on that in the school context recently involving Bexley in the Upper Tribunal, where the Upper Tribunal really has reiterated just how much information needs to be put forward before you can rely on that exception. So, for example, you'd have to identify in the college context which young people would be affected by this person attending, this young person attending. You'd have to identify and establish, first of all, that you're actually providing efficient education to those young people, which is quite an interesting point that some colleges may be rather offended to be asked, but they must evidence that. And then you'd have to show why precisely the attendance of this individual would be not just difficult, but would actually bring the standard of the education you're providing to others below the standard of efficient education. It's quite a challenging task if done properly. And of course, in a tribunal appeal, then the college through the local authority would have to do it properly if they wanted to avoid being named. But I expect in many cases, people will be put off, won't they? But they won't get that far and there won't be that kind of rigorous analysis, unfortunately. And I think that is helpful. And I think there just are a few more private FE colleges rather than maintained ones. But I think the local authorities sometimes aren't aware in quite the same way, or they certainly don't give the impression of that with the sort of the young person and their families, because once they get a little bit of pushback, and I think it's very important to say it's often around safeguarding, exactly as you say, because safeguarding is used as a kind of, well, that's it then, isn't it? We have to protect the children in the FE college and I think that you're right to break it down because actually the local authority is perfectly entitled to break it down into where it is a maintained FE college. So again, yeah, I think if better understood and implemented, it would be really helpful alongside thinking about all the ways that you can support the young person so that those things don't arise. And then if you've managed to get in and the college is trying to get rid of you, well, what then? Because of course it's striking again, similar point, that there's no statutory guidance on exclusions from FE colleges, whereas there is detailed guidance on school exclusions, which specifically tells schools not to exclude children with EHC plans, and particularly with EHC plans, generally with SEM, but particularly EHC plans. So you've got young people in colleges with EHC plans who don't have that kind of protection. And it's really going to be a question of applying the college's own disciplinary policy, as Anna rightly says, which may or may not have been drawn up with particular regard to the requirements of the Equality Act, shall we say. So looking in detail at what that policy says and considering the extent to which it will need to be adjusted. Now, one of the questions I think that often comes up in these cases is not just the reasonable adjustments duty, but also the extent to which those kinds of blanket policies can be indirectly discriminatory against disabled learners on the basis that those kind of general approaches, for example, a zero tolerance policy for drugs or sexual misconduct, whatever it might be, can disproportionately adversely affect those with the protected characteristic of disability. And I did think it was very positive, actually, going back to keeping children safe, that when you look at the legislation section of that guidance, the first two things it talks about are the Human Rights Act and the Equality Act. And if colleges, in the absence of guidance, do think about things primarily through those two legal lenses. I think that would be a really good starting point because all of the relevant considerations and the balances are there. They're built in, aren't they, to things like the reasonable adjustments duty only requiring reasonable steps 
to be taken, the Article 8 rights within the Human Rights Act in terms of people's private life and their dignity and their relationships with others all being qualified and being subject to questions of proportionality in terms of interferences with those rights. So actually, if you take a Human Rights and Equality Act compliant approach, you'll probably get the right answer in these cases, albeit that's not straightforward in the absence of a detailed guidance framework. Yep, as we said right at the outset, even having some sort of basic guidance which just reiterates that fact, for example, in exactly that way, I think even that would provide a good framework. And of course, there will be colleges who have reference to all of that in their policies, but I'm afraid you and I probably see the ones that don't, is the honest answer. So and I think for the time, we need to move on, don't we? Because we've got the whole concept of higher education still to bring in. And before I just sort of hand the baton back to you for that, I would just flag a really important point for the cohort we've just been describing, which is that EHC plans, of course, don't run to higher education. And that was controversial and expressly debated at the time of the Children and Families Act. I remember amendments being put down seeking to change that and apply the education, health and care plan obligation up to higher education, but it doesn't. And so disabled adults go into higher education happily in quite large numbers, of course, now with the expansion of higher education without the protection of a statutory plan. So my starting point here would be that Equality Act and Human Rights Act principles are even more important than in the higher education context because there isn't the specific statutory framework within the Children and Families Act and local authorities are really no longer a main player, are they, other than through their Care Act safeguarding responsibility. It's much more about the institution, the higher education institution itself and their adult learners. So that would be my sort of baton passing point. The, the absence of the HC plan is a huge difference really for higher education. Yeah, a huge difference with all of the differences it entails in terms of, as you say, the statutory protection. And again, this is a massive area, Steve, isn't it? We kind of touched on this. I think a lot of people, if they're thinking about safeguarding adults in education, they would think about universities. And we're talking about mental health, self-harm and suicide. We're talking about prevent again. They're sort of being drawn into terrorism. We're talking about sexual harassment and assault. It's a massive area and we're going to scrape the surface on some of that. So this is a, a we said it's a kind of general discussion. And again, we've got different adults, haven't we, in university? So as you say, a lot of disabled adults or adults with special educational needs will be accessing universities without EHC plans. There will be adults who are defined as being at risk under the CARE Act. There will be vulnerable adults. And then there will just be young adults who would be deemed to have capacity. Who, And so there's a, a wide range of people accessing university. And what do we mean by safeguarding then? It really is a kind of sort of trying to define what safeguarding means in higher education is difficult because it encompasses all of those groups. Clearly, there is a safeguarding duty to adults at risk and vulnerable adults. But actually you hear, and I think rightly so, you hear institutions talk about the need to safeguard their population of students. But in legal terms, it's more complicated than that, isn't it? So the duty of care, let's put it this way, in higher education is quite narrowly drawn. I think I would say I'd be interested to see what you think. But certainly what more recently, and this was a discussion which postdated a tragic case of a student who took her own life at university. And the university was held to have breached the Equality Act because they hadn't made adjustments. So she was a student who had a lot of anxiety and she was required to give various presentations, which she found very difficult. They were found to have breached the Equality Act on that basis. They hadn't made reasonable adjustments for her in respect of that. 
but they weren't found to have breached a duty of care because it was said that there was no specific duty of care in, in relation to her welfare, which was, I think you said, it's the language of the Care Act. It was, they didn't have a duty to protect her from herself, was I think something along those lines. So the duty of care is a, is a narrow one. They have to deliver educational and pastoral services to the standard of an ordinarily competent institution. So when they're doing that, they're expected to act reasonably to protect the health, safety and welfare of their students. But it doesn't really go any further than that as things currently stand. I was just going to say, and I think that's a really interesting example of the limits of the common law, isn't it? That when people talk about duty of care, well, technically, of course, they're describing a duty of common law uh, that's normally articulated through the uh, frame of negligence. And necessarily, of course, the common law limits those general duties and does impose high bars for when there has been a breach. And that's why I think specific statutory provisions are so important to deal with particular groups and the, the Equality Act is the most obviously relevant one here. But then so is the Human Rights Act as well in terms of Parliament being able to impose more specific obligations that relate to particular groups or particular situations and say, well, these are the minimums that need to be followed here. But there isn't as yet any kind of statutory obligation specific to universities, is there? That's That was what was being debated around at the time of the case that you're referring to. That's why we need to look elsewhere, I think, for the duties on universities at present. And certainly the position of, of the sector is that those kind of obligations under the Equality Act, and of course the contract, and that's perhaps a key distinction, isn't it? That the contract between the student and the learner will impose obligations that need to be followed. And I think that's right. And I think it's important to make that point, isn't it? That in legal terms, that's probably the biggest defining factor of sort of adults at university, that it's largely a contractual relationship that they have with the university. And of course, that contract has all sorts of things which can be implied into it in terms of reasonableness and the way that students are required to behave, sort of standards of behaviour, which will be set out in the university's guidance and so forth. But the, yes, you're right, in legal terms, that's the most defining factor. I think just briefly on the duty of care point, there is an interesting question about, so as you said, lots of disabled students or students with special educational needs in university and, and a lot of them accessing additional support via the learning support part of university. And where a student is signed up to that specific learning support, I think there's an interesting question about whether or not that imports a slightly different analysis in terms of duty of care. But again, I think still the most defining factor is the contractual one, I think. And so we're in a very different world then, aren't we, to what we've been describing in terms of safeguarding in other contexts. And I think that's important. I think so th there is guidance out there, Steve. So we're not saying there's nothing. There clearly is. So the Office for Students has done a lot of work around this area in terms of safeguarding students. I know that they we're involved in a study. So there are sort of bits of guidance around, specifically guidance, which tells universities what they should do if they're investigating something which is also the subject of criminal proceedings, for example. So that there are lots of bits and pieces out there, but what is difficult to find is anything which is kind of centralised, authoritative, <laughs> gives an overview of the different groups of adults, the different ways in, in which you need to think about safeguarding for those different groups. And again, I think that really is missing. And again, I think something which both of us have said comes across our desks quite a lot is how universities 
should be dealing with allegations of sexual misconduct against students. And the classic things which tend to arise are, how do you ensure a proper investigation whilst also making sure that you're delivering on procedural fairness for the accused? Very complicated. And certainly we've talked about a number of cases in this area, often not very well handled, I think. And again, that's not really actually the criticism it sounds like, because I think it is incredibly difficult to get this right. And despite there being, as I say, some guidance on this, I don't know what you think, but I think there is, again, certainly scope for this to be more thought through with different groups in mind. I think most barristers who do this work would have had the experience of going to a university panel in relation to some allegation of misconduct. And as Anna rightly says, it will often, of course, be sexual misconduct. And my experience is that the fairness of those procedures varies wildly and that there is a lack of centralised guidance and standards to be applied to make sure that very serious allegations potentially, which are going to be determined on the civil standard, on the balance probability, so it's, you're more likely to be found guilty, in quotes, in a university investigation than in a criminal forum, that there is fairness on both sides. I think the most obvious one is where you've had allegations of sexually improper behaviour and the complainant doesn't want to do anything more than give those allegations, be interviewed by a member of the university staff and, and leave it there. Now, totally understandably, universities are not compelling complainants to come to the hearing, certainly not to submit to being cross-examined by people like us. But then where's the fairness on the side of the accused if there are disputes of fact or very subtle disputes about who said what when and what was understood by certain behaviour, if there's no ability to test in cross-examination. My, my take on all that is that panels need to do their best and need to factor in very significantly before making any findings, whether there have been limitations on the process that are necessary in order to protect the complainant. And if there is a dispute of fact and there's been no ability to cross-examine, that's got to be taken into account in deciding whether the panel is able to make a finding on the balance of probabilities, which of course still requires it to be more likely than not to have happened. And as long as panels understand that and are assisted to do that properly, then processes aren't necessarily unfair, even though they would never get past any kind of criminal tribunal. Because there do have to be significant adjustments and we can't require young people who are alleged to have been the victim of traumatic experiences to go through a process they're going to find more traumatising. That wouldn't be right either, in my view. But it's about trying to find, trying to navigate these very difficult situations, um, which have really serious consequences on both sides, of course. You might have a young person saying, well, I can't continue at this university if the person who did these things to me is still there. And, and then the accused saying, well, if you make these findings against me, I'm going to lose my chance to, to graduate. So the stakes are high in these cases. They're not trivial in any sense, are they? I know, and also, and I know we touched on this, but 
the very complex issue of what you do while you're investigating. So, you know, and, and I know keeping children safe in education has recently added this into its guidance, where allegations are made in the school setting. How does a school manage that? And I think that's a topic which universities are finding very difficult. And certainly I've seen some, again, quite wildly different approaches to it. And it's not straightforward either. If there is an allegation of this kind and the young people are both in the same accommodation, for example, or there are all sorts of issues which arise and which it's difficult to deal with. And again, a real lack, I think, of specific guidance. Although I'm sure absolutely there will be people advising and there will be bits and pieces of guidance. But again, I just think that there's little which is kind of obviously available in this respect. And the touchstone has to be proportionality, doesn't it? That has to be the absence of specific obligations or specific guidance and the principles of proportionality that infuse the Human Rights Act are central. So the concepts of taking the least intrusive measure that can get you to the outcome that you need to get to, but also ultimately this concept of fair balance, that any of these kinds of interventions that necessarily impact on people's private lives, which is a very broadly defined concept, of course, must strike a fair balance between the competing interests. And it will be for the university to decide in the first instance where that balance should be struck. But they need to strike it. And there needs to not just be a pursuit of a particular allegation, come what may, notwithstanding that the process may be obviously unfair. Until we get anything more specific, I, my view is that the concepts of proportionality and that the Human Rights Act framework for decision making is what should help universities reach the right outcome in these cases, or more relevantly, adopt the right process in these cases to get to an outcome. It's definitely about getting the right process in place, doing some of the thinking beforehand. But as you say, each case might have its own specific things which need to be taken into account. As we've said, there are different types of adults in these institutions who might require different things to be put in place. So it would be useful to have some some sort of touchstones and then you just have to rely on a certain amount of good sense in the process as well, don't you? I'm reminded that Chambers offers safeguarding advice across the spectrum of issues that affect children and adults, including sport, charities and the public sector. We do firmly believe that safeguarding is everybody's business, and that's why we've produced this podcast series. And you will find the series on forms of social media at safe underscore cast. You'll also find us at 39 Essex Chambers. And this series is taking place across Adult Safeguarding Week from Monday the 20th to Friday the 24th of November. So a number of our esteemed colleagues are also producing episodes covering other areas of life which we would commend to you as being at least if not more interesting than the tool that Anna and I have just given. Thanks for listening. Find our other podcasts and resources over at 39essex.com. Listener.